0: Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you all for being here to support the Weavers as they transition out and to pray with them as we just did. And thank you for staying afterwards to celebrate that with a little feast in the Live Oaks Center. So as we've heard Ryan read and we've read responsively Psalm 27. Uh, If you've gotten a letter from me, you'll probably have inferred that that's one of my favorite psalms. I often put Psalm 27 verse 1 at the top of the letters that I write. Uh, And this is A psalm that's not just a personal favorite, but also one that speaks to a theme, which is really important for Patrick and Danielle and Jane as they transition and look into a somewhat unknown future. And for the very same reason, it's a theme in this psalm that's important and relevant to us. Because in some sense, we are all looking into an unknown future. Nobody knows what tomorrow holds. Not even the lady who reads tarot cards down the road. Not even she knows. And because we don't know what the future holds... There is fear in our life, and that fear can be greater or lesser depending on the person. Some people are more susceptible for psychological and emotional reasons. It can wax and wane depending on the circumstances of your life. Psalm 27 knows fear, but it also knows about overcoming fear. That's what I want to think about. Let me pray real quick. Lord, open the eyes of each of our hearts this morning so that we would grow not just in our understanding of your word, but in our delight in you and find in that delight strength to overcome any and every fear. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a few years ago, I got my first iPhone. I can be a bit of a technophobe, so I put off getting an iPhone for a long time. I used to have a brick phone, actually, when we lived in Cambridge. We had to type text messages by pressing each letter, you know, one, two, or three times. But I did get my first iPhone, and I one of the first apps I downloaded was called Heart Watch, I think, and this app was a cardiograph. Some of you might know about cardiographs. They measure the beats of your heart, and so I activated the app, and I checked my heart rate, and it was about 49 beats per minute. Now, moment of truth, I didn't know whether that was good, bad, or otherwise. I was quite clueless about what the heart rate should be. So I did some research. I found this article, and I learned that a typical resting heart rate is between 60 and 90 beats per minute. But then I continued reading, and the article went on to say that conditioned athletes, I want you to notice carefully what I just said there. It said conditioned athletes, they can often have resting heart rates below 60 beats per minute. And that made my day. I knew that bocce ball was paying off. I knew it was paying off. But then someone told me that that app is notoriously unreliable. And that rather ruined it for me. The Bible is a spiritual cardiograph. You want to know what, how you're doing uh, spiritually? Look at the Bible. And within the Bible, there's no better place to look than the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, you find men and women revealing their spiritual heartbeat, and it's against that that we can measure ourselves. In Psalm 27, which we just heard, we meet a guy called King David, a man of God, and in his words in this psalm, we see several marks of a healthy heart, a heart that is not bound by fear, a heart that is able to find some real measure of rest and peace no matter what's happening around us, no matter if we're looking into an unknown future. Look again at verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, we don't know why David wrote this psalm. We don't know the historical occasion for it. There's no information about that given. But we do know, and you can see this from reading the psalm, that when David wrote it, he was under immense pressure. He was under immense pressure. Maybe it was pressure from King Saul. That's what happened uh, when God anointed David king. David had been anointed by God, but at that time, Saul was still the de facto king. And Saul felt threatened by David. He actually threw a spear at him once when he was playing the harp for him. Or maybe it was at a moment when David's son, a guy called Absalom, rebelled against his father. And when that happened, David actually had to flee the capital of Jerusalem. The king went into exile temporarily. Whatever the moment, we don't know what it was, but whatever the moment, there was a lot of pressure. And that is the type of moment in which this psalm has its origin. Which is why, quite frankly, it is astounding... That David begins with this confident assurance. Verse 1 The Lord is my light, the Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Now, this is not David reminding himself of general truths that God is great and gracious, general and kind of abstract truths. This is David doing something more. He is applying those truths to himself. The Lord is my life, the Lord is my stronghold, the Lord is my salvation. Specific and personal. And as Christians, we can say the same because in Christ we are absolutely secure, as Patrick just reminded us. Christ is your salvation in any circumstances that may be overwhelming you. He is our salvation in the face of an unknown future, a future that can grip us in fear and anxiety, and we all know what that's like. We need not fear. What's your biggest fear? The fear that hits you when you wake up in the middle of the night. Those fears can be so raw at that moment. That happens to me often. What are you frightened of? Very likely, behind that fear is some sort of idol lurking, an idol that would draw us away from Christ. And so that means as I face my fears, I've got a choice. Either I can depend ultimately on the one true and living God, or I can look to something else to give me security, which is what we all often do. Yours truly included. An idol, you see, is anything that we look to for security. Something that we put in a place which should only be held by God. We look to that idol for security and satisfaction and salvation. And idols look at us and they say, look to me, trust me, and I will give you security. But here's the irony, is that when you look to an idol, you always end up less secure you always end up less secure. Let me make this more concrete. For some of you, the greatest fear is the greatest failure. By the way, you might not even recognize this. You can be gripped by fear The fear of failure, not even recognize it, but that is true. So you're worried about being exposed. You're worried about coming up short. You're worried about flopping or failing, and that becomes an idol, and that in turn drives everything that you do, everything that you say, how you conduct yourself in this world. And here's the irony. When you are taunted by the fear of failure, and I know this fear personally and deeply, you tend to overwork. You become a workaholic. And then you're much more susceptible to stress and to illness. And those leave you much more likely to get sick and ill. And when you're sick and ill, you're not going to achieve all those goals that you've set for yourself. They come crashing down. For others of you, there's the fear of loneliness. It's endemic in our culture right now. You're terrible at being on your own. There's a huge fear of being alone. And that can become an idol. And that idol longs to have friendships so much that you're desperate to please everybody all the time and you're never sure if you've done enough. And so you find yourself continually thinking, you think this even about the people who love you the most in your life, you think, do they really love me? And as that happens, you can become overly demanding and you can become emotionally manipulative and that of course drives people away. And so there's the irony, you end up alone. And still, for others of us, there's the fear of being unattractive. This is also endemic in our culture. This is often an unstated fear, but many, many people feel this way. I know people in this room feel this way. Listen to this. Not long ago, there was a study done of 33,000 women. It was a survey. And what did we learn from this very interesting study? We learned that 75% of women aged 18 to 35 think they're too fat, even though only 25% of them are medically overweight. Plus, of those who are actually medically underweight, 45% of them think that they're too fat as well. How about that? It's easy to become obsessed with body image and physique. And By the way, this applies to men as well. Have you ever heard of the Adonis complex? It's named after that ripped Greek god, Adonis. My wife, Cindy, sometimes says she wished I had just a little bit of that complex. The more we worry about this, we look at those magazines with those perfectly proportioned models, the more we convince ourselves we're ugly and we latch on to having the perfect shape or the body or the look, and the more we do that, the more ugly we convince ourselves that we actually are, and so there's the irony. When you let your fears, the fear of failure, the fear of loneliness the fear of being the wrong shape or size, when you let that, and there's lots of other fears too, when you let them drive you to a fleeting vision of success or popularity, you end up less secure than before. Idols promise you the world and they don't even deliver the moon. And so wise people find their security in God. And David is a wise person. In verse 3, David imagines the worst scenario that he could come up with, being besieged by an army. What's your worst case scenario? I doubt it's as bad as that. Yet David says, even in that situation, he says, even in this horrible situation, I'm going to be confident. Not because he was born with lots of courage, not because he's a man of great character. He's going to be confident because he knows that God is powerful and gracious. He knows the same thing that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's say that out loud together. If God is for us... Who can be against us? That's what David knows. And by the way, I want you to listen really, really carefully now. By the way, that does not mean that God being for us means that everything's going to be successful and beautiful and that we're not going to have any hardship. That is not what that means. Hard things are going to come to Christians. But those things, when they come, cannot separate us from God. Nothing can separate us from God. Nothing. I want you to let that sink into your heart. If you take one thing away today, let that be it. And this is a truth that we need to understand. But we don't just need to understand it. We also need to feel it. And you need to rest in it. And I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying it to you. I need God to open the eyes of my heart. Not just to have understanding of these things but to feel the truth that nothing can separate me from God. I need that to hit my affections. I need it to affect me. I need it to affect me, and so do you. And that is how we get rid of fear. That's how you live a fear-free life, by trusting in God, by delighting in God. That's the secret. Now, some of you might have heard of this ancient Christian bishop. He's one of my heroes. I actually read a biography of him over the summer before I moved here and took up this post. It's a famous Christian bishop called St. John Chrysostom. That word Chrysostom, that's not a last name, it's actually kind of a descriptor. It means golden tongue because he was a a legendary preacher. He was also a bit of a smart aleck. John was someone who didn't mind speaking truth to power, which is why at the end of his life he found himself in front of none other than the Roman emperor and empress. He got in trouble because he told them things they didn't want to hear. And the emperor said, John, we're going to banish you. And John said, no, you won't. You can't because the whole world is my father's house. And the emperor said, well, John, then we're going to execute you. And he said, no, you can't. My life is hid with Christ and God. You can't do that. You can't kill me. Well, we're going to dispossess you of your estate. No, you can't do that because all my treasure is in heaven. That's what he said. Okay, well, they're going to put you in solitary confinement. Can't do that either because I have a friend that I can never be separated from. That's how John answered those questions and threats. I defy you. Nothing you can do to me can actually hurt me ultimately. He was a very tenacious guy. That's a guy who understood not just intellectually, but also in his heart and in his feelings and affections that the Lord is his light and his salvation. How's your heartbeat? In closing, let me talk a bit about the process of coming to trust God this way, of resting in God the way that John did, the way that King David does. Look at verses 4 and 5 from our psalm. This is what David says. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, one thing I'm going to seek after. And ask yourself, is this the one thing you're seeking after? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire into his temple. Now notice here, David is not asking that the enemies be taken away. He's not asking that God would whisk him back to the comfort of the palace. That is not what he's asking. David says, Lord, let me dwell in your house. Let me gaze on your beauty. This is about coming to realize that no one and nothing is more beautiful than God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No one and nothing is more beautiful than God. Now somebody who's not a Christian, they might find God to be awesome and frightening but probably not beautiful and delightful. Someone who is not converted by the Holy Spirit may get very excited about the promise of everything God can do for you. He can forgive you. He can deal with your guilt. He can bring healing. There's the promise of heaven. But they don't get excited simply about God himself. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is by the Spirit that we come to marvel at God's character. Not at what God can do for us, and he can do a lot, but simply at who God is. We worship a God of amazing power. He made everything, but he's also a God of the details, and he cares for each one of us. Every hair is numbered, or every dreadlock, as the case may be. I always add that in for my sister Jane. She has dreads. They're all numbered too, Jane. God loves what is good. He hates what is evil. He loves us despite the fact that we're a mess. Everybody in this room, including me, is a mess. Despite the fact that we are not the parents or the friends or the spouses or the neighbors that we could and should be. God loves us. And God also, he cares deeply about justice. He judges in truth and righteousness. But he is astoundingly merciful at the same time. And in God, as Patrick said, he took the judgment for our sin in Christ so that we might live under mercy instead of judgment. That's what we see on the cross. You know this. This is the language of the Bible. I'm just saying it to you again. It is on the cross where we see most profoundly the beauty of Christ. The beauty of God in the face of Christ. Now again, it's only in the Spirit that you can see this beauty. I can't make you see it by telling you about it up here. It is only in the Spirit of God that you can see this beauty, which is why some of you might want to open your hands right now and pray in your heart that God would help you to see that afresh. Some of you need that. In the Spirit, we look at the cross and we don't see ugliness, and folly, but instead we see wisdom and we see beauty and we marvel. And here's the thing, when you marvel at God's beauty, to the degree that I marvel at God's beauty, I will not be filled with fear because fear cannot coexist with that. That's how you live a life free of fear. Because this affection, this delight, it has what's called an expulsive power. Now, what does that mean? It means that as the affection of delighting in God, like King David does in this psalm, as that affection grows and intensifies unhealthy affections, unhealthy attachments, idols, they wither, they get cast out That is the expulsive power of delighting in God. Think of it like this. We're always going to have affections. Our hearts are full of inclinations. They get attached to things, which means that you can't just drive something out because if you don't replace it with something else, you'll go back to that thing. The Bible teaches this. It's also basic psychology. It's a bit like a teenage boy whose parents are desperately worried because with all the time he can spare, and there's not much time to spare, he just wants to go down to the basement and play computer games or video games. He wants to sit there doing that. He's obsessed with them, and it's affecting his grades. It's affecting his social relationships, and his mom and pop keep pleading with him to stop doing that, but he keeps going back, and then something happens. He meets a girl, and now he just wants to spend all of his time with her. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. The more we perceive and gaze at the beauty of Christ, the more we marvel at that, the less and less we are drawn to those sinful inclinations and desires. Instead, we start thinking. I start thinking to myself, why would I want to go after that idol? Why would I want to be controlled by that sort of fear? And instead, I start praying, God, just like King David, help me to gaze at your beauty. Help me to gaze at your beauty. That's what's happening in this psalm. It's why, verse 5 and 6, David is confident that in the day of trouble, God's going to keep him safe. That's the imagery in verse 6. Did you notice that? There are enemies all around this guy. I mean, he is surrounded by the Viet Cong. But what's he doing? He's dancing and he's singing. This is unashamedly emotional. This is not stoic poise in the face of a difficult life situation. Here's something I want you to think about. I was reading a story recently about a guy's upbringing. He was reflected on being raised as a Christian in a church-going family. And he said sometimes they go to a weekend away or they'd go a summer camp or a youth retreat, and they would be deeply moved by the grandeur of God, deeply moved, tears, hands springing up. You couldn't hold them down. But it was kind of accidental. It wasn't something that they aimed for. They didn't aim to enjoy God. Listen to his words. He said, we knew we were supposed to believe the Bible and live godly and moral lives, but we didn't know that we were to have hearts filled with pleasures forevermore." That's a word from the Psalm as well, by the way. Pleasures forevermore. We didn't understand that those pleasures empower godly living. We didn't understand that empty hearts, no matter how full of knowledge our heads might have been, empty hearts jeopardize living in freedom from idolatry and fear. David is someone who is aiming to enjoy God to intentionally gaze at God's beauty and to delight in God. And the result of that is confidence in song, not fear. There's no terror in this guy. He does not quiver or quake at anything. And why? Because he's delighting in the Lord. He aimed for that. It's not an accident. And so Jesus helped me to do likewise. to search after your beauty to gaze at your beauty and help Patrick and Danielle and Jane to do that in the days ahead and for all the days of their life. That's gonna be your strength. But help everybody else in this church do it as well because that's gonna be our strength. There's fear in this room, there's anxiety. God can help with that if you let him. You have said, O Lord, seek my face. So let our hearts say together to you, Your face, O Lord, are we going to seek.